So we, you know, I had it was taking a different concept. Now there's a lot of people doing, but I had to I had to prove that to myself, and, and I had to prove it to other people. And then this very people who were doubting me hired me. So I think when you're close to somebody, you don't see their potential; you see their flaws. And we all have flaws, and we're all lacked in our certain ways. But family, especially, is critical. You have a role in the family, and that's how they find you. And so yeah, part of it is is overcoming that mental construct hey everybody this is driven by and i am sam coates on this podcast you're going to hear experiences lessons insights and the drivers behind why my guests have built what they have built and how this applies to what drives you it's great to have you listening to this show for more episodes and more information go to podcast.sampcoates.com or check out this podcast on every major platform app. My guest this week is Ken Utek. What happens when you spend close to 40 years traveling the country and working with close to 1,000 businesses, organizations, individuals, nonprofits, and more? You learn about how we as people operate and how to address things as they are and work through them. I've yet to hear where a conversation like this won't apply to any person, any situation, or life. Ken and the UTEC Group have served and impacted organizations as large as the United States Army and other billion-dollar organizations to large private companies, family businesses, nonprofits, religious organizations, and much more. I'm so glad to release this week's episode with Ken UTEC. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time, and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. Ken, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me from good old Green Bay, Wisconsin. I, I like the way you pronounce Wisconsin, Sam. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> What's the right way? How do we do it? No, it, it, there's no right way. It's just that your accent comes through. Gotcha. Well, I got a good one. <laughs> 
So Ken, can you talk a little bit about your background and the work that you're doing and just give some context about who you are? Well, from a practical standpoint, I was working with, uh, with families and I realized that if I work with businesses and organizations, I could have more of an impact. Uh, and so part of my focus is how do you make things better? How do you improve things? And the, the idea that I've had for a long time was that if leader-to-leader interactions, if people could work more effectively together, it would improve output. It would improve bottom line output. It would improve the morale. It would make things work more effectively. So my expertise is how relationships work and how you can make them more effective. That process morphed into not only how you can make relationships more effective, but how can you build effective cultures that create movement, that create growth in an organizations. So it, it went from individual or teams uh, in terms of how leaders can interact with each other, how team members can interact with each other, then to how you do build a culture that's effective so that you can sustain growth and change and movement uh, in your organization. You've been doing this for over 30 years, correct? Yeah, I hate to say that, probably closer to 40, but uh, we'll say 30. It makes me feel younger. You're on the road about 75% 75% of the year? Uh, probably uh, 50 to 60% of the time. Yeah, this has been kind of, the COVID has been kind of a nice break because I've just been on Zoom. But otherwise, I'm, I spend two and a half weeks of the month on the road traveling. Somewhere between 700 and 1,000 companies, if you take that spread. Yep, from all over the country. When you think back on your career and you look at what you're doing today and what you're focused on for the future, what are the top three or four things that hold either a leader back, an employee back, or someone back within their family? What are those things that you see most frequently? Fear. And a fear of uh, change, fear of losing control, and inability to empower people to grow. Oftentimes, leaders are more focused on maintaining the status quo, which is an illusion, uh, and maintaining control because there's, they're fearful that something bad is going to happen. And when they let go of their fear and recognize that change is constant, growth is constant, uh, and, there's, and control is an illusion, they can begin developing processes that allow people in the organization to grow and flourish. To do that, they have to have a culture that promotes that. And you've worked with every organization varying from a small business or a larger business and their middle management all the way up to billion dollar organizations and hospital systems, uh, church groups. So a, a large variety of organizations, both from profit to government to businesses across the spectrum. And so these organizations vary anywhere from 15 people all the way to several thousand. Yeah, I think the, uh, um, obviously the, the, the army was a, fairly large organization, uh, but in, from a business standpoint, it, it's gone up to uh, 30,000 people. So there's a lot of content, there's a lot of quotes, there's a lot of just information out there about change and how people don't often want to change until they feel the significant pain of why they have to or why they need to change. And I imagine the people that work with you and the people that you have the most impact on are people that make a choice that they're going to want to go ahead and change regardless of the severity of the pain. I, I would frame it just a little bit differently. The, the most effective leaders I know 
see their role as change managers. They see that they cannot maintain an organization the way it was, the status quo, and that their role is to manage the change or the tension in the organization. Effective leaders recognize where there's tension within the organization and with the organization and their customers and figure out how to utilize that tension to create effective change. Uh, when a leader does that, they begin empowering the organization to meet those needs and those expectations. Can you give some real practical examples of what it looks like within an organization or within an individual where there's tension where change is not happening and then what the process looks like to come in and actually unlock that and to create improvement and to address those fears and those control issues? I'll use service organizations as, as an example. Oftentimes, service organizations, it could be physician groups, it could be accountants, it could be engineers. Sometimes they are fearful of the change because they want to hang on to what they have. So if you're a if you're an accountant or you're a physician, it's like, if I let other people into my group, if I have a scarcity mentality, I'm going to control everything around me because I'm afraid that somebody's going to steal my pie. What happens is if you have a scarcity mentality as opposed to an abundance mentality, you begin trying to control things as opposed to how do I open myself up? Just an example Independent practices are figuring out how to work more effectively with hospital systems. And hospital systems are trying to work more effectively with independent practices. But if one tries to control the other, and generally it's the hospital systems trying to control the practices, they cycle each other and they become unnecessarily competitive because they're afraid that somebody's going to steal the pie. When hospitals and private practice groups begin figuring out how they can work together, they see more abundance and they create more prosperity and more business and actually become more effective dealing with their patients. So what does it look like when you're coming in and you're meeting with the head of a clinic or the head of a hospital and control, fear, scarcity, et cetera, and you start to try to expose a better way of doing business and a better way of thinking to more abundance mentality versus scarcity, what kind of work do you start doing to create change with the decision maker and how do you get them to see what would be a better way of doing it? Before we decide to uh, work with somebody or they decide to work with us, and it has to go both ways. We interview them regarding what makes them successful. What is their formula for success? And it's interesting because people don't really understand what makes them successful. They, they know um, how they may go to market. They, they know their strategy to go to market, but they don't understand the nuances of what attracts businesses to them. So there's a whole question and answer and discovery process that says, what really differentiates you? What makes you uh, the place that people want to come or go to? And then, then what are the barriers for you to keep on doing that and going that? So the first of all is understanding what's that formula for you. And then the, the next piece is what are the barriers that get in the way? In that, in that process, we did begin uncovering what, uh, if they're scarcity-oriented, if they're abundance-oriented, does it match how their teams actually operate? A variety of different things. I'll just give you an example of a hospital we work with. Uh, actually, two hospitals in the same system. Uh, one hospital had a 
strong scarcity control mentality. And the patients really could feel that when they walk in. They felt the tension. They didn't feel the acceptance. They felt the nervousness. Same hospital system, another hospital. You walk in and you feel, and this is another part of that, not in Wisconsin area, another part of the country. People feel welcome, cared about. And it has nothing to do with physician expertise. It has everything to do with the culture that people, that the patients feel when they walk in. Uh, just an interesting kind of piece. And when, when you get leaders to understand what makes them successful, what draws people to them, then they can begin figuring out what is that cultural significance that makes a difference for our patients or for our clients or for our customers. So oftentimes when you come into an organization where there's frustration or where it's stagnant, how much of it is usually because of the CEO or the owner or the family that controls the company? And then how much of it is usually within the key leadership and management of the company or how much of it is both or is it always both? I think it's generally a combination thereof. When you begin looking at your organization, you, you have to begin figuring out, again, what it makes it successful and what is the culture that you're creating? And then do you, does, does the leadership support that culture or they have to find a culture that they're not even living? So is, and once you define what, what makes you successful and that what the culture is that you want, you begin figuring out, are you living that culture? And do you have a team that knows how to live that culture? Uh, oftentimes, you define a culture and then you don't live it or only certain people live it. Uh, and if you can define what makes it successful and how the culture reinforces and supports that success, then you begin evaluating everybody to see how you live it. Uh, and if you, can, if you can define that effectively, you become much more effective, you become a better organization. Morale goes up and your customer relationships actually improve. So it seems like it's pretty messy to go through this process. Is that right? I think it's messy and revealing, and it takes a lot of courage on the leader's part to be able to look at that. The work that you've done and the people that I I know of that have done the work with you, they talk about a direct, not just a cultural and trust impact, but then also a direct financial impact due to revenue growth and then also profitability. But can you talk a little bit about any financial impact on the back end of going through this process of shifting the mindset of the company and addressing control and fear and people that block movement and growth within the company? Generally, depending on the severity of the change process that that an organization goes through, if it's a severe change, there's usually a dip before there's a a resurgence. Uh, Sometimes there's just a resurgence. Clarity about what you want, it, it sounds crazy because leaders usually know that they want to do a good job but don't always understand uh, how they are and aren't, aren't doing a good job because there's not usually effective feedback loops between the people closest to the customers and the leadership. When you begin understanding your culture, your, your form of success, and then you establish feedback loops so you know what the customers are saying and what your, your staff are saying, then you can begin measuring how you can be successful is the people who know what needs to happen are the people closest to the customers. So yeah, the, the hierarchical piece is you establish a culture, you establish your formula, you train everybody in that culture, and then you establish feedback so that people closest to the customers can get feedback all the way to the top of the organization about how well they're doing and what needs to change. 
with that, those established feedback loops, you begin ensuring better success, better morale, and a variety of different factors to move the organization forward. So if you could kind of break down these issues or the stagnation, it sounds like the key words that you're talking about are feedback loops. And if, and if a company is run with a fear-based or controlling culture, then there's going to be a large disconnect between the frontline service to the customer to the ownership. And then oftentimes ownership is surrounded by people that tell them what they want to hear, or they're kind of isolated in their own ecosystem. And then there's a large disconnect between the company. And I guess what you're saying is a healthy company is a company where there's alignment and engagement across the board. And it's an innovative company, but then there's really strong communication between the front line to the ownership and leadership of the company. So it's constantly innovating and then serving the good of the customers and then therefore creating a better company. I'd say in, in a similar way, the, and this is not a negative towards leadership. Our experience has been, even depending on the size of the company, the person least knowledgeable about what's really going on in the company is the CEO. And that's unfortunate. Uh, because people will tailor information either because of fear or because maybe some middle managers don't want to get that information to go to the CEO. But oftentimes the people who need to make the decisions that are uh, really critical don't have the information that they need. So it, it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because uh, you have a, a middle manager who says that if I share that information, I put myself at risk or if I empower people to make decisions, what, what purpose do I serve in the organization? So you know, when you create a culture where you begin empowering people, it doesn't mean that you, have, you don't have accountability. You actually create better accountability. So if the person who's closest to the customer can get feedback all the way up the chain saying this is how things are working, uh, and then you begin problem solving up and down and sideways, you become more effective become more responsive and your organization grows more quickly. Digging in on the individual, whether it's a CEO or whether it's a middle manager or if it's a frontline worker, if it's a husband, a, a wife, a male, female, et cetera, I'd lo love to talk a little bit about fear and control and emotions. Can you talk a little bit about the personal journey that somebody has to go through to move from a scarcity mentality, fear-based mindset to more of an abundance mindset? What are the things that have to happen for an individual to shift? Because an organization is only going to be a result of the people within that organization shifting. But what does it take for an individual to actually shift? Well, I think for you know, part of what, what I've had to go through personally myself and what I have leaders go through is the recognition that they're not as powerful as they think they are. When you recognize that, I'll give you an example, a catchphrase, cliche-ish catchphrase is you can be powerfully impotent, which means that you can have everybody fear you, you can be so powerful that people back away from you and they don't know what to do with you, they, they try to manage the responses to you, and then you don't get things done. These people will only tell you what they, what they want to hear, and you're powerful, but things aren't happening the way you want to happen is you instilled fear. You recognize that you're actually somewhat impotent, but you can be more powerful by being that. You recognize that your control is really not control, it's influence. So you're not, when you try to control situations and people, you create fear, 
when you create compliance, when you recognize that your power is how you influence people and how you create processes and feedback loops that people can talk to you and to each other, you actually become much more powerful. It's paradoxical because you think the opposite would be true. But effective leaders recognize that creating fear doesn't create health. At the same time, you actually have more accountability when you have processes and people are free to speak their mind back and forth. It doesn't create anarchy. It just creates the opposite. Because if people can talk and hold each other accountable and give you feedback about what you're doing wrong, there's freedom in that because now you're empowering people. You can actually create more accountability because if your culture is defined, People understand what their expectation culture is nothing more than, than expectations about how we're going to act with each other. You have a defined culture that says, I want to empower you, I want you to make decisions based on these parameters. People feel freer, uh, they feel more connected, and they feel more a part of things, and then they can learn how to manage things more effectively and hold each other accountable. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AV Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AV Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. What would you say to someone that's wrestling with how they're trying to understand their emotions? Because there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of speak that people pass on to where you can't trust your emotions. And then there's a whole nother side of people and their belief system where your emotions are significant and, and kind of what you believe in or, or where you're headed, et cetera. But Emotions and logic, et cetera, can be very complicated. I mean, we don't have to go too deep into it, but then when you factor in dopamine and trauma and triggers, et cetera, how would you advise someone to think about emotions if they're feeling like a gut instinct about a situation or a person or a change, but then they filter things maybe through a a logical framework and then maybe they feel confused, maybe they don't have clarity well, a, a couple things. I think that that the critical piece, is, and we talk about this in a training standpoint, effective leaders have a, a solid head-heart connection because you have to have your intellect, you have to have the cognitive, you have to have the strategy, but you also have the heart. People respond to leaders who are vulnerable and they have heart. But if it's all heart uh, and no logic, then you're, you're operating at a disadvantage. So uh, you, you have to be able to marry the two together. It's also interesting that some of the most effective and most powerful leaders in, in large organizations that I've worked with have had significant trauma in their life. And you would think people with significant trauma would not make good leaders. But the people that I've talked to have had the significant trauma 
and had to overcome that trauma. And what they've done is they've recognized the emotion, they've recognized the pain, and then they put some logic to that to be able to work with it. They also have the ability to be vulnerable to people. There's a, a quick story, one leader of a, a large, yeah, there are about 8,000 people. Uh, and he had companies, has companies all over the, the country, all over the world, actually. And uh, he was laying out his values and the culture that he wanted to create. And uh, I asked him to tell a story about him himself and how he, he got to the value system that he was at. And he told a story about his background in, in terms of alcoholism within his family and how he had to adapt to that alcoholism and how that sense of uncontrollable fear that he had dealing and navigating through that life was really what compelled him to be compassionate and caring about people because he didn't want other people to feel that same sense of loss of control. He, you know, he threatened me. He said, if I can tell that story and, and, and I'm going to tell it worldwide, if this doesn't go well, I'm going to get you. <laughs> he was half joking, half serious. Well, it was interesting. He, he did this you know, video conference and it got played all over the world. The response that came back at him was unbelievably positive. People, it just felt like, I got to know you better. I got to understand the values of the organization based off of what you're coming, where you're coming from. I feel like I'm connected to you and I can understand more fully why we do what we do. Huge response where he took the emotion, connected the emotion to his head and then translated how he wanted people in the organization to work together. That organization had it just grew rapidly. He established a safe place for people to talk and be invested in each other. He parlayed that, that process and he took leaders from his organization and went, he took, you know, he would take, you know, a leader would take 10 to 12 people at a time, go off site for three days and they would tell each other's stories and feel connected to each other. And he, his point of view was if we could be vulnerable with each other and connect with each other, we could work more effectively together. So he used that vulnerability and translated that into leadership development and built a strong organization that was not abusive at all. For a large, fairly large organization, they really transformed into a culture of how do we care about each other? And if we care about each other effective, how do we get things done? So when somebody comes through and wants to address their trauma or they want to transform their organization, they want to use more vulnerability with how they lead, what does it look like to try to protect yourself as well if you're fearful of being exploited or you're fearful of people not performing? How do you work this process, but then also be a good steward of responsibilities and and be responsible? What does that look like? Well, and I think the overriding fear for most people is that if, I, if I'm if i vulnerable, people will take advantage of that uh, and take advantage of me. Uh, and there's some truth to that, you know, because there's some people who will take advantage of you. But if you have a culture uh, where people feel connected and they feel cared about, uh, they're not fits for the culture. Uh, and leaders, uh, the, the higher up in the organization, the more vulnerability you need to, to, to display in order to make it safe for other people to be connected. Uh, if you look and evaluate how effective teams are, 
you can have the, and this has been, yeah, I've seen this time and time again, you can have the most skilled people in a room uh, around expertise, knowledge, but if they don't work well together, they're just skilled individuals who actually then begin competing with each other. So if a, if a leader is saying, I'm going to be vulnerable and I expect you to be vulnerable, you don't have to tell all your secrets, you don't have to go as deep, but you have to have enough vulnerability that you let people see that you care about them. So you don't have to self-disclose everything. But if, if you make that emotional connection with each other, then we don't have to compete about who's more knowledgeable, who has the best expertise. We can problem solve more effectively together. That makes a really solid team. So from an individual perspective, you've talked about fear, you've talked about control, you've talked about scarcity. When it comes to limited beliefs, how do those affect a leader or an individual or anybody listen to this, regardless of what they do professionally? We all are imperfect beings. Uh, so we all have situations going up in our life where we have to adapt. Those adaptions are necessary at the time. But if you don't understand how those adaptions to life limit you, your, your worldview, then you don't understand how you limit yourself and then how you limit your organization. And we all have them. For example, my, uh, my father died when I was just, I was just turning 19. I was in college. Uh, and the company he worked for, where he had all his money invested in, uh, went bankrupt. So I was the youngest, uh, and uh, it, it happened fairly quickly. He died on an operating table. Uh, within three months, all, he had all his money invested in, in this company and, and their stock. It just went, went away. Uh, so I remember watching my mother, who just did didn't have an education and, and looking going, okay, I have nothing. So that required me to actually stay at home, go to college. And I worked, I drove truck for seven years until I got my master's, but I, I felt the pain for my mom. And I recognized at that point, I made a decision. I'm not going to trust another organization to take care of me. Uh, I'm not going to see that kind of pain in my family. So that created a limiting belief in me that says, I have to be in control. I can't trust other organizations. I have to be in charge. The good piece of it, it made me self-sufficient and it made me run my own organizations. The bad thing is that I was more concerned about financial success than family success. Limiting me, limiting how I ran a company, limiting even my marriage would almost cost me my marriage. I was working too many hours. I was so concerned about being financially successful and never being destitute again. Until I addressed that limiting belief and recognizing that I can trust people uh, and that uh, the emotional well-being of my wife and kids was more important than the financial, that was a strong limiting belief. It was based off of something that was real and that I had to do, but it limited me in my ability to trust people in my uh, how hard I worked and uh, my delegation in my empowerment pieces. You said it almost cost you your marriage. What did that look like for you when you were working those hours and then you also knew things were not the way they should be with your marriage? But, you know, I would just guess that you suppressed that realization. How did that play out in your life? And how does that, I mean, I can talk about myself, but I'm just curious, how does that play out day to day? Because I feel like a lot of people, 
they keep operating, they keep functioning, A, because they don't know what else they're supposed to do, or B, they feel like they have responsibilities or there's expectations of them, you know, but something's off and they know it, but they keep suppressing it, but then they keep moving forward. And then you can look up and time can fly by really fast. How, how did that play out in your life? And how do you see that play out with all the people that you serve? For me, it played out where uh, I grew an organization. It, it wasn't, I grew it from like 20 people to, uh, by the time I was done, it was about 150 people, but I controlled too many things and, and I didn't build the infrastructure. You know, now I look back at it and I'm kind of embarrassed by myself, but so I had to be, so I was working all the time, seven days a week, all the time. And uh, I thought that by supplying the financial resources for my family, that my wife would be happy. Turns out that she was pretty lonely and, and that she didn't see me as being happy. And so I was not home. And when I was home, I was tired and kind of grouchy. So she did not want to divorce me, but she got to a point where she said, uh, you have a choice, uh, either me or this organization. And it was a wake-up call for me. It was an emotional wake-up call. It was a spiritual wake-up call. I spent time with people saying, what am I doing? And I changed. Uh, I, I really limit. I really began recognizing that that was a limiting belief that if I was going to run an organization, I needed to develop, first of all, infrastructure so the organization wasn't dependent upon me, that the financial aspects of, uh, of, of my life weren't as important as the relational aspects. Uh, and it, it propelled me to do a lot of what I'm doing now. And, I, and my wife, Chris, has to take all the credit because I was just oblivious. She had to threaten me, and I know she didn't want to divorce me. She loved me, but she it was just too much. So she... She uh, woke me up. And all of us, like it or not, have wake-up calls. Sometimes I was fortunate enough to hear what she was saying and recognize that what it was doing was wrong. I have been fortunate enough to be with other people who've had those wake-up calls. And generally, it's because they have successful organizations, but they're out of balance. And they don't realize that if they build a successful culture in a successful organization, they don't have to kill themselves working. Uh, but the need for control, like I had, was so strong that that's what they think they need to do. Some people don't have, have the wake-up call, but they choose to ignore it. And, and it's, it really is everybody I've met who runs an organization gets to that point and gets to that wake-up call, uh, and some pay attention and some don't. Uh, and when I've been lucky enough to be with somebody who wants to pay attention, it's interesting because their organizations don't go downhill, they actually grow. Just a quick example, a small manufacturing company and uh, we were working and the owner got a wake up call and said, okay, I gotta do some things here. Uh, actually, it wasn't from his wife, it was from his kids who were working for him and said, this isn't gonna work. So uh, it, 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 he was into control. I made a deal with him that he could only work an hour and a half a day. <laughs> and uh, he could come in every morning. He could meet with his leadership team. And then he had to go and he had to go and play or do something. And he ended up building a cottage. <laughs> uh, his organization grew 40% in three months, <laughs> which just depressed the hell out of them. <laughs> Pleased his kids and his leadership team because they they feel free to, to grow and develop some things. Now, 
it is to his credit, he had some things in place, yeah, but he was the, the, the lid that was stopping that from happening. And I've had numerous situations where, so it wasn't that he needed to be away from the organization and he eventually came back in the organization on a more full-time basis, but with really defined roles and responsibilities and, and having a team and a culture that was intolerable. And there's so much I want to dive in on that. One question I do have, how do you encourage people to think about previous mistakes or regrets? I mean, you've done this with me, but when you feel like there's this temptation or there's this strong focus of things that you've done in the past that you wish you would have done differently and you feel like that can define your future. I know how you've like done it with me, but how have you seen that play out with individuals? And then how have you encouraged them to challenge that narrative and to have more an abundance mindset, but then to also take ownership of stuff that needs to be taken ownership of. Part of it, and I'll, I'll just use myself as an example. I had to uh, learn to forgive myself, learn to forgive my family, and actually learn how to care for myself more effectively. Uh, as leaders, we tend to be harder on ourselves and, uh, and don't know how to uh, be okay with it. I think my point of view is that if you're a leader and you don't make personal mistakes, uh, you're not much of a leader. The difference is that when you screw something up, you can either use it to beat yourself up or you can say, what am I learning from this and how, I, how can I be different? So I, uh, I really work hard to maintain that with myself. He is based on my, my background, not only just taking care of my mother in the financial case, I have a, a degree of over-responsibility. So I take, which in some ways is really good because I'll take responsibility for things. But sometimes it's not bad when I take too much responsibility. So learning how to balance out what I'm responsible for and what other people are responsible for and how to create an atmosphere around me where we're all learning. My point of view is if I don't make a mistake, I'm not really pushing myself. If the organization doesn't make a mistake, it's not pushing itself. You don't want the mistakes to be fatal, but you want them, you want them to be there and challenge and make new things. So an attitude of forgiveness doesn't mean that you, you don't learn. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you can forgive each other and forgive yourself, you create an atmosphere where you're always learning and growing. I've heard this mentioned a lot, and I'm curious to know your take on it, but in the Bible with Luke 4.24, I've heard this from people that would claim Christianity, and I hear this from people that claim not to be Christians, but they say that no prophet is accepted in his hometown, and I think it's interesting when you think about commitment, choice, growth, the dissonance that you feel, even if it's just through your own head, or maybe it's through negative feedback in your environment, it always seems like there's this discomfort when you're making choices to grow and to change. And a story that makes my point, I remember last year I was at this meeting for an organization I was affiliated with, and somebody made the comment, they referenced this passage, and they said, there's a lot of people here in town that know more about this topic or could do this very well, but if you fly somebody in from out of town and get them to talk about it, people are going to think it's more special and believe the person that flies in from out of town versus somebody just talking about from the hometown. And so it seems like there's this just narrative or like past experiences or past things that you could have done better that 
can either in your own mind frame skepticism or pessimism, or it's through relationships, et cetera, that can just, I don't know, that just kind of represent this passage. And I'm just curious to know what you think about that or where you think it comes from. I think people who are close to you have a perception of you that isn't necessarily based on your potential. When we started, when I decided to start to do this business, the feedback I got from family was that I was crazy. <laughs> that uh, no one would hire uh, a do-gooder uh, therapist to work with their business because businesses don't have that touchy-feely stuff. So literally no support. Actually, you know, I, I, how I got the business going is I went out to a number of businesses and said, let me work with your teams. If you see value in what I do, then you can hire me. But I won't charge you anything unless you see value. That it took it took between I literally took about two to three months, and I was you know actually making fairly good money. Um, but I had to because when I started doing this, no one literally no one that I knew of was doing this in the area or in the country. So we you know I had it was taking a different concept. Now there's a lot of people doing it, but I had a I had to prove that to myself. And then I had to prove it to other people. And then the very people who were doubting me hired me. So I think when you're close to somebody, you don't see their potential. You see their flaws. Well, And we all have flaws. And we're all whacked in our certain, certain ways. But family especially is critical. You have a role in the family. And that, that, that's how they find you. And so yeah, part of it is, is overcoming that mental construct and figuring out you know, how do you do it differently. Yeah. The beautiful thing about everything that we're talking about, you don't even have to have all the answers. You just got to find somebody like yourself and just say, I'm just ready to go. I'm ready to do it. And that's all you got to do. It's just saying, I, I want to change. Mm -hmm. If you're open and you're open to looking at yourself and you're open to discovery and you're curious, it just starts happening and it continues to happen. I think as old as I am, as much as I've done this, I realized that uh, how little I know and how much growth I have ahead of me. Uh, it, it just, there's a freedom in recognizing you never arrive, uh, that you're always moving, you know, both spiritually, emotionally, relationally, business-wise. We're, we're a constant work in progress. And uh, when you have that, it, there's a real freedom in that. So. This has been so great. So thankful for you spending so much time this afternoon, and I can't wait to get this out. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day. Yeah.